I'd like you to take your Bibles now, if you would, and turn them to Revelation chapter 12. I think most of you, uh, if not all of you, well, there's some of you that weren't here for the morning service, and that was our yearly service to celebrate Christmas. And I took this morning's message from this passage of Scripture, which, as I mentioned, is a quite unusual one for a Christmas message. And I'd like to read these verses once again. And this evening, I want to emphasize verse number 5. We're going to talk mostly about that and what takes place in that Scripture. So if you'll look in Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse number 1, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Now, as I said, this is a very unusual text for a Christmas message. And uh, you, you wouldn't believe how much I struggled over whether I was actually going to use this text or not. I started on it and stopped and started again. And even as late as uh, uh, this morning, before the service even began, I was still wondering, should I preach a Christmas sermon from this text? But I hope that you found that it was appropriate and uh, it did lead us into the Christmas story. But I don't think that there are actually very many people that at Christmas time think about this supernatural warfare that was going on at the time that Christ was born. Uh, When you go to visit a nativity scene, you see the little baby in the manger, and you see the doting mother and the cattle that are supposed to be lowing in the background and the little innocent baby lambs that are there. And we really don't think a whole lot about a horde of gruesome demons that were standing there, waiting there to devour that child when it was born. Now, earlier in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John gave us a description of demons. Now, if you'll turn just a few minutes, uh, or a few pages rather, over to the ninth chapter, John saw demons. And I, I don't know if all demons look like this, but I know that these did. So if you look in Revelation chapter 9, verse number 2, it says, And he opened the bottomless pit... And there arose a smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth. And unto them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. Then verse number 7. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle. And on their heads were as it were crowns like gold. And their faces were as the faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions. And they had breastplates, as it were breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. And their power was to hurt men five months. Now, you probably never thought of those kinds of creatures peering down at the Christ child at the same time that Mary and Joseph and 
the shepherds were there to worship him. But that's really part of the scene because before God created the world, he knew that there would be this cosmic conflict and he knew there would be this supernatural battle that would be fought and it would involve the holy angelic host of heaven, but also these great hordes of fallen angels, these demons, the the ones who are the comrades of Lucifer, the ones who joined him in their rebellion against God. And as we read in that passage a few moments ago, the, it says that the, that the dragon, Satan, drew the uh, uh, third part of the stars from heaven. They were, his tail drew the third part of those stars, the angels, and they were cast to the earth. And that dragon, Satan, and all the demons stood before the woman that was ready to deliver the child as soon as it was born. Now, let's don't make a mistake about this because I explained this in the morning message that the woman that's spoken of in this passage is not Mary. It's talking here about the nation of Israel, that Israel is the one who brought forth the child. But it's no less true that when Jesus was born, when Mary was there and Joseph were there and the baby was born, those angels, uh, evil angels, demons were there and they would have snuffed the life out of the child just as quickly as they could if God had allowed them to. So that's a part of the scene, but I don't think that you want to go down and visit a living nativity and see hordes of demons peering down in the nativity scene. That, that really wouldn't sit too well, I don't think. So we, we, those, that, that was happening at the same time, but we don't want to picture that. So I think what we need to do for now, then, is just pull away from that kind of scene and refer us now to some more Christmassy thoughts. So I want you to look at verse number 5 again. It says, and she brought forth a man-child. Again, that is Israel, brought forth a man-child that was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And as I mentioned this morning, this verse refers to the glorious ascension of Jesus Christ. Now, the verse skips over the details of his birth. It doesn't mention his supernatural or his, or his sinless life, I should say. It doesn't talk about the kindness and compassion of Jesus as he healed people and nearly obliterated disease in Israel. It says nothing about that. It doesn't say anything about the death of the cross, nothing here about the resurrection. None of that is mentioned. But it is talking about the ascension of Christ where he is now at the throne of God. And so this passage leaves us waiting for the second coming of Christ, when he comes with ten thousands of his saints, with innumerable company of the angelic host, and they'll all come when Jesus comes to begin his kingdom upon this earth. So we're left here in chapter 12 with that scene in verse number 5. And then, of course, when you get to Revelation chapter 19, that's when the king comes to conquer the world and to begin his kingdom. Now, Satan, as we've learned, was not able and as we know, was not able to prevent the birth of Christ. Neither was he able to destroy Israel. He was not able to destroy the Davidic line of kings because God did prevail and Christ was born. Well, I want you to turn to another scripture that mentions the ascension of Christ, and this is in the epistle to the Ephesians chapter 4. And from this text, I'd like to talk to you for a few minutes about the wonderful gifts that are ours because of Christmas. Now, giving, of course, is the spirit of Christmas. I think most people would probably be agreed. All, um, well, most of us as Christians would see this, I think, that we would be agreed that when the wise men, wise men came and visited Jesus, that 
they brought him gifts, and perhaps that is the impetus for us giving gifts at Christmas time. We give gifts to each other. I know there are even some people that put a gift under their tree that's supposed to be a gift for Jesus. But looking here in verse number 7 of Ephesians chapter 4, we learn here who is actually the greatest giver. Ephesians 4 verse 7, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also ascended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. Now from those verses we learn that it was not the wise men that began the practice of giving at Christmas, but it was God himself. Before the world was ever created, long before there was the first Christmas, God determined that he would give the world the most valuable gift of all. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Now, in these verses, the Apostle Paul speaks of the ascension of Christ, but we notice what he says is first here. He says, Before that Christ could ascend to the heaven, verse 9 says that he must first descend into the lower parts of the earth. And that makes sense, that before Christ could go into heaven, he had to come from heaven, he had to come down, he had to descend, and this is what he did in the incarnation. The apostle John wrote in John 1 verse 14, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There it speaks of the word, and the living word is Jesus Christ, and he came to dwell among us. The actual rendering of that passage is that Jesus came and tabernacled in the flesh, or he took on human flesh, which in itself is just an unfathomable act of condescension for the living God to become flesh and come to this earth, to take on the frailties of human flesh to become like man. But the Bible says that he did descend to the earth. That was the incarnation. And it says that he descended into the lower parts of the earth. And that's a reference to the humility of Christ and the death of the cross. And he descended into the earth, and that is that he was put into the grave. I don't have time to deal with this now, but this has nothing to do with the idea that some have, that when Jesus went into the tomb, that he went into hell. We know that he didn't do that. He said to the thief on the cross, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. So Jesus didn't go to hell when he was in the tomb. Jesus went into heaven. But he descended to the earth and then he ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And that means that he is the fulfillment of the divine purpose. That Jesus came to do what was given him to do by the Father. And he did all that he was supposed to do and all that he will do. Or everything that he is supposed to do in the future, he will do. It was determined that Jesus should come to the earth in human flesh. It was determined that he should die the death of the cross. That was God's plan. And then he would arise from the grave. It was God's plan for him to return to his place in heaven. And it's God's plan for him to return to this earth to finish the final redemption of the new heavens and the new earth. Now we notice in verse number 8 it says, When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive 
and gave gifts unto men. He led captivity captive. That seems like somewhat of a cryptic phrase. What does it mean when it says that he led captivity captive? Well, it's actually... It actually has a very glorious meaning because it's the heart and soul of this cosmic conflict that we've been talking about. This is a reference, actually, to to God's victory over all of his enemies. It's a reference to the defeat of sin. It's a reference to the defeat of that old serpent, the dragon, the deceiver, the adversary, this fallen angel that's named Lucifer. It's a reference to the defeat of the Antichrist and all of his followers. It's a reference to the defeat of the persecutors of the church and those who blaspheme the name of God. It references the defeat of the governments of the world and even the government of our own United States. It references the final defeat of Satan. And most wonderfully, it references the victory that God will have over death. So Satan, sin, and death are depicted in this passage as captors. Satan captivates the soul. The soul is in bondage to the corruption of Satan. Sin is a captor. Uh, It enslaves men and keeps them from serving the Almighty God and honoring and living for him. Death is a captor because it subjects the soul to the horrors of an unending lake of fire. There's a physical death that we die, and then also, for those who don't know Christ as Savior, there is a second death, which is in the everlasting torments of hell. And so when Jesus died on the cross, and he rose from the grave and ascended into heaven, sin, Satan, and death became his captives. So he led captivity captive. And so these become slaves of God and they're no longer able to hurt God's children again. And that victory is won because the Son of God became incarnate. He lowered himself for a time to engage in this battle of destroying the works of the devil. John wrote in 1 John, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So God gave his most precious gift. He gave us his own son. He gave us Christmas in order to defeat sin, Satan, and death. He led captivity captive. But it also says that he gave gifts to men. Now let me take just a few minutes to describe some of the individual gifts that are given to the people of God. And there are many of them. And I don't have time to give you all of them. We would be here for a long, long time talking about all the ways that God has blessed us with so many gifts. But God has given us some gifts, and we'll talk about some of those. If you're like me, what you like to do is to dig under the Christmas tree and see how many gifts are there for you. Now, when our kids were growing up, my wife would wrap up all of their gifts and then she would put all of Clarissa's gifts under one section of the tree and she would wrap all of Lauren's gifts and put them under another section of the tree and then Nathan's gifts, those would go under a section of the tree. And I really didn't have a section because I didn't get that many gifts, so I didn't warrant a complete section there. But as God's child... Christmas means that there is a whole section for me with all of the gifts that God has given. The psalmist says that he was loaded with benefits. And I, and I think there's, there's a Christmas message in that, that God has loaded me with benefits. He's given me all these gifts. So let's just talk about a few gifts. What 
is in God's Christmas tree under your section. Well, I think we could start with this, that God gives us the gift of forgiveness. Now, a gift, by definition, is something that you acquire without compensation. Gift is not something uh, that you buy. A gift is not something you buy for yourself or something that you earn. And neither is the forgiveness of God. For God's forgiveness is not something that we have to earn. Now, really, that is just a very basic fundamental of Christian truth, that forgiveness is a free gift of God. But did you know that the vast majority of people who call themselves Christian do not realize that the forgiveness of God is free? Each week, there are millions of Roman Catholics around the world that visit a little confessional booth, and they sit in a little seat, and they whisper into an ear, the ear of a priest, and they say, Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. And then the priest doles out the cost of forgiveness. He gives the confessor penance in order that he can be forgiven. Well, is that what God requires? Does God require penance for forgiveness? Well, if there's something that you could actually do to receive forgiveness, then it wouldn't be a gift. Uh, a gift is not a gift if you have to earn it. Now, it. It wouldn't be much of a Christmas for my kids if I said, you know, I have a lot of gifts for you, but here's what you have to do to get a gift. Uh, you, you, you've got to take out the trash, and you've got to mow the lawn, you've got to clean the house, you've got to do all of your homework, you've got to get all these chores done, and then we'll talk about the gifts that you're going to get. Well, that's not really much of a gift. Not if we ask them to earn it. Maybe that's the idea where the idea came from that old St. Nick has got a list and he's checking it twice to see who's naughty and nice because he's not going to give any gifts unless people have actually earned them. So he brings the gift if you've earned it. So he says, you have to be good before you can have my forgiveness. God says, if you want my gift, you have to clean yourself up. You have to make yourself presentable. But that is an impossible thing for me to do. I can't be good. I wasn't good. There's no chance of me ever being good. But instead, I know that God has forgiven me his forgiveness. He has given it to me freely. It's a gift that's not earned. Because here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. I am justified freely. And that means it's without cost to me. I receive remission of my sins. That, that word simply means the forgiveness of sins. And it is truly a gift that God gives. It's given to me freely. And that is a great gift that all of us that know Christ as Savior find under Calvary's tree. Now, secondly, God gives the gift of eternal life. Ephesians 4.10 says that Christ led captivity captive. And those sins, or those captors again, are sin and Satan and death. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. And so if I'm working for anything, if I'm trying to earn something, what I'm earning is death. Now, can you imagine that? That the scriptures teach that my righteousness is as filthy rags. My righteousness is no good. And so the sum total of the worth of my life is nothing but rotten, filthy rags. So I'm sweating, and I'm toiling, and I'm working to get where? 
Well, the Bible says that the wages at the end of this life, the wages of our sin, is death. Now, we need to hold on to that because Romans 6.23 really doesn't end at that point. It says the wages of sin is death, but there is a very important word that comes next, and it's the word but. And that but changes everything. It says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so Christmas brought to us the gift of eternal life. Under God's tree is this wonderful gift that he's given of eternal life. And all that's made possible by the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so he came to this earth. He gave up his life in order that we might have life in him. So eternal life is a gift that God gives because of Christmas. Thirdly, God gives the gift, and I really think this is a great gift. God gives the gift of adoption into his family. Now listen to these great verses of John chapter 1. I read to you the 14th verse a moment ago. That verse is about the incarnation. It said the word became flesh. Now listen to what John said right before that. He came into his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Well, how do you become a son of God or a child of God? How do you get into God's family? Well, it's not the way that many suppose. There are many people who believe that everybody's just born into the family of God, just by the fact that you were born in the world, that you're born into God's family. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. Neither are we born by human decision. We don't decide that we want to be in God's family. To be in God's family, we are put there purely by the grace of God. Verse 13 says, which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So adoption, this is really a great, a great gift that God has given. Something I'd recommend that all of you would do at some time or another, and I don't know how many of you will take me up on this, but you really ought to read A.A. A. Hodge's exposition of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it's really, to me, it was one of the most interesting books that I've ever read. And when I started, I couldn't hardly put it down because it just explains so well so many things that are in the Bible, the doctrines that, that, that we believe and teach. But here's what A.A. A. Hodge said about adoption. He said, adoption presents the new creature in his relations, his new relations entered upon with a congenial heart and his new life developing in a congenial home and surrounded with those relations which foster its growth and crown it with blessedness. Justification affects only a change of relations. Regeneration and sanctification affect only inherent moral and spiritual states of the soul. Adoption includes both. As set forth in Scripture, it embraces in one complex view the newly regenerated creature in the new relations into which he is introduced by justification. Now what he's telling us there is that adoption is what places us into the family of God. It gives you a new relationship with God. Now all of us have been justified if you trusted Christ, but justification is just a change in your legal status. 
We've all been regenerated and sanctified by God. But regeneration and sanctification only affect our moral status. But adoption combines both of those so that we are legally the children of God. We are heirs of the inheritance of God. That comes, uh, justification is a part of it. And our sanctification is a part of it. And regeneration is a part of it. Because that tells us that we can never be cast out of the family of God. That once we're adopted into that family, we belong to him forever. Now, have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about what it would be like to be born into the richest or one of the richest families in the world? What would Christmas be like in the home of the world's wealthiest families? Well, every year there is a Christmas celebration at the Biltmore House in Asheville, North Carolina. And that is the, was the home of George Vanderbilt. It's the largest house in America. And we've been in that house on many different occasions. And I've stood in the rooms of this massive house. I mean, some of the rooms are bigger than what we have right here that we're sitting in tonight. These are rooms that they lived in. But I've been in that house and looked at just the magnificence, the opulence of that house and wondered what must it be like to have a Christmas in a house like this, to live in a place like this and have Christmas. Well, one of the things that they did, I mean, they put up a Christmas tree, and it's not, it's not, they still do it today, it's not a six or seven foot tree like we have at home. They have a tree that's three and a half stories, 35 feet tall. And so to put the star on the top, you get a nosebleed when you get up there. I mean, this is really, it's some magnificent sight to see. And can you imagine how much room that there is under a 35-foot Christmas tree? I mean, how many presents could a kid get under that tree? Well, that would, be, that would just be a magnificent thing to be in a family like that. But George Vanderbilt's wealth is nothing in comparison to that of God. I mean, his family wealth doesn't even register on God's scale. See, the whole universe belongs to God. Everything is his. And when you are adopted into God's family... You become an heir of all of that. Everything that God has becomes yours. You, you can't beat a Christmas gift like that. You get everything that God has. Now, one day, all of God's children will be in a great banquet room. They'll be sitting with God the Father. We're worshiping him with Jesus Christ. All of God's children will be gathered together around him. And I like a, a song that came out a few years ago. The title of it is No More Night. Just listen for a moment to the lyrics of it. It says, The timeless theme, earth and heaven will pass away. It's not a dream. God will make all things new that day. Gone is the curse from which I stumbled and fell. Evil is banished to eternal hell. No more night, no more pain, no more tears, never crying again. And praises to the great I am. We will live in the light of the risen Lamb. See all around, now the nations bow down to sing. The only sound is praises to Christ our King. Slowly the names from the book are read. I know the King, so there's no need to dread. See over there, there's a mansion that's prepared just for me, where I will live with my Savior eternally. No more night, no more pain, no more tears, never crying again. And praises to the great I am, we will live in the light of the risen lamb. Folks, that's what heaven is. That's the home of God's adopted children. Well, one more that I'll give you this evening, since there's so many, but I just didn't want to keep you all night, just mention a few things. The fourth one is God's gift of gentle 
guidance. God gives us the gift of guidance. Now, as we all know, when God saves us, he doesn't take us out of the world. Now, some people, when they are converted, they, they, they die immediately after conversion, but there are not many that uh, leave that way. But instead, as children of God, we're left in the world to navigate the world and to do God's work. And that's, to me, almost a frightening thought to think that God has left me here to do his work. Do you want to be responsible for the failure of God's work? Now, unfortunately, there are ministries that try to put that kind of burden on you. They'll tell you that you are responsible for souls that die and go to hell. And that's really too bad that they teach people like that because that smacks of sacerdotalism. The salvation of no person is dependent on me because if it was, God helped them for it. It can't be dependent upon me. I can't even navigate the world on my own. I mean, I I can't take care of myself. There are just too many holes for me to fall in. Satan is too powerful for me to overcome and to fight. There's a cosmic battle that's going on that we just read about in the scriptures. And the only way that battle is fought is in the power of God. It's fought by God's power. And God may use me as an instrument. And he does for the salvation of souls, but he never put the unbearable burden on me and told me that I am responsible for any soul salvation. That's God's job. Now, I'm left in the world for the short time that I'm here, and I'm thankful that under God's tree is that gift of guidance. Isaiah wrote, He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. That is a precious thought. God's gift to me is the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. The Spirit is our teacher. He's our guide. He takes us through this journey of life. And the the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That means that this one who came to this earth, the one who was incarnate, that was born in that manger, that came on Christmas and then died and then ascended into heaven, that one who came lives in me. And when he came and ascended back to heaven, he didn't say, I'm just going to leave you in the world to fend for yourself. You do the best that you can while you're here. No, he promised that he would guide me. Jesus said that he would send a comforter. And so he sends the Holy Spirit into every believer to be his spirit living in them. And you know what that does for me? It makes every day Christmas. It means every day when I wake up, the mercies of God are new all over again. This is what it says in the book of Lamentations. It is of the Lord's, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning, great is thy faithfulness. Now, do you ever imagine that you would get up on a Christmas morning and you would find these kinds of gifts under the tree? And that's just a small sampling of the gifts that are made possible because of Christmas, because Jesus came to this world. So yes, there's that cosmic battle that's going on all around us. Even as we're preaching the message tonight and meeting in this room, there's an unseen world where there are that whole, those hordes of demons that we just read about in Revelation chapter 9. There are those types of demons that are flittering and fluttering all around the room tonight, looking down on what we do. But thank the Lord for this. We are protected from every one of them. 
Now, if God were to withdraw his protection from us, we would be destroyed in a heartbeat because that's what Satan wants to do to all of those who are God's people. But we're sheltered from it. Remember, probably the most famous passage of all, maybe if you get beyond John 3.16, this would have to be maybe the most famous after that, where the psalmist said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table for me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's the joy that we have of Christmas. These are gifts that God gives because of Christmas. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. So Satan couldn't stop Israel. He couldn't stop Christ coming into the world. The woman brought forth the child, and he fulfilled God's purpose. He led captivity captive. And the Bible says, he gave gifts unto men. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for Jesus Christ. I mean, every time we we come in prayer, we have to say the same things about how we're so thankful that Christ came into the world to save us from our sins. What a great gift that we were given when Jesus Christ came into the world. And we think about all these things we've talked about tonight, just a very small sampling of the things that are ours because we know you as Savior. We don't really understand why people could hear the message of what Jesus came into the world to do and the gifts that are promised because of salvation in him. How would anybody ever want to turn their back on such wonderful, precious gifts, especially when they know what the alternatives are? But we know, Lord, you're the only one who can open our heart to understand that message. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would open hearts tonight. And we thank you again for the Lord Jesus Christ, that baby that came was born in a manger, who grew to a man, and died for our sins and arose from the grave. We're looking for him to come back. We know he has ascended to the Father and waiting for the time when he shall come back to receive all of his children home to be with him. Thank you, Lord, for Christmas. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.